Would you all turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes 1 as we read through the passage of Scripture that Isaac will be preaching through today? And Do we have little lambs today? We have nursery. If uh, you have kids that need to go down to nursery, you can go down now. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over, Jer- over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Our God, as we begin a new year, um, we want to look toward what is most important, toward what is solid, toward what is sure, and we've already done that in rehearsing again the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could dismiss right now and already have food for our souls from that reminder that you have sent your Son on our behalf, that you gave him to be the satisfaction for our sins. But now we look into Ecclesiastes, and, and it reminds us of life that passes by, and we are called to take note of it, of that sobering reality. So I pray that we would in these next few minutes, and that you'd be honored in our hearts and lives. Change us in whatever way we need to be, to be more Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember a couple years ago, there was, I want to say it was 2017, maybe. And at the end of 2017, there was a whole string of celebrity deaths. Do you remember, do you guys remember this? And uh, 
Everybody was freaking out on social media. This is the worst year ever. My favorite actress died, and my favorite actor died. And oh no, 2017 took so and so too. Can the can the year get any any worse? Um. And the the idea is is that one year can be really bad, but you take one calendar off the wall and hang up another one. And maybe it will be different this time. Uh, January wasn't any different, but hey, if you flip from January to February, maybe it'll be different. Oh, this year is going downhill again. Let's do this 12 times real quick and hang up a new calendar so that it will be maybe something hopefully better than before. And, uh, and we know that... Uh, the, the, the paper on our wall doesn't actually make any meaningful difference, right? If you think about it, January 1st, uh, it's not like God ordained January 1st as the beginning of a new year. Different cultures, countries, uh, societies now and through the ages have picked different times for their year to start. It's just a way of marking time, right? And there's nothing, nothing theologically significant about a new year, but it serves as a good reminder to us. And one of the ways that it serves as a really good reminder is uh, that it, it's time passing, of which we only have a certain amount of, of it on this earth. Um, I'm 33. Uh, this, the, a handful of you think that sounds old, and some of you feel like that is really, really young. Both of you are kind of right. Um, but I'm 33, and I already have the old phenomenon that everybody older than me talks about of, whoa, this year went even faster than the last year. Whoa, time sure, sure flies by fast. It just keeps getting quicker and quicker. Uh, my kids are growing up way faster than I want them to. Talitha's not supposed to be five. That shouldn't happen. Obadiah was two weeks old yesterday, and he outgrew his newborn clothes. Like, no. You can't, can't do this, kid. You're, it's, it's fun that he's this big. It'll be fun when he's bigger, too, and, and that's important. Um, but me feeling that way, the feeling that, that time is passing really quickly, um, that's ironic just in and of itself because that's what my parents have said and what my grandparents said and what the people before them said and that someday my kids will say, if, if we're still on this earth, wow, time sure is passing by. One generation leads to another. And we're going we're gonna to reflect a little on time passing and on death from Ecclesiastes, that we are mortal, that God has only given us a, a breath of time on this planet. And that's okay for a 33-year-old me to think about, and it's okay for a 5-year-old to think about, and it's okay for an 80-year-old to think about Death. It's just as relevant for all of us, even though we hope that the young still have a long time to live. One of my heroes, John Bunyan, he wrote these words. He said, Better to be ready seven years before death comes than to want one day, one hour, one moment, one tear, one sorrowful sigh at the remembrance of an ill spent life that I have lived. It's better to be ready now. And today we're going to take a little bit of time to consider our fleeting nature as, as mankind, um, our fragility, 
and our struggle and our inability to be really meaningful in our lives from a human perspective. We're going to begin in Ecclesiastes 1, although we're going to bounce to a few passages and we're going to get to chapters 2 and 3 as well. But first of all, I just want to think about the fleeting nature of man. The author here holds no punches in in describing uh, how man's life passes by and how it seems worthless. And, and it's just a downer, all right? He, it's just a downer for chapter one and, and, and onward too. But just to begin in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to be in he, here this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, the title Ecclesiastes, it comes from the Greek, ekklesia, which is where we get church from. So it's a, it's a Greek title to a Hebrew book. And it has to do with an assembly of people that are together. So it's a message to an assembly of people. And when you read in verse 1 the words of the preacher, uh, it's the, the one who's speaking to an assembled gathering of, of folks who are before him. He's, he's someone with wisdom passing it down to an, an audience, a congregation. Not, not quite like our our church gatherings now, but a parallel, or parallel in the sense that it's a group of people assembled together to hear, and he is speaking, or in this case, writing to them. The author of Ecclesiastes is said to be that preacher, the one speaking. He's identified as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we don't have his name, but it's very reasonable to conclude that it, this is Solomon. Uh, not only from the fact that he's the son of David, king of Jerusalem, which sounds like Solomon, but also just the nature of the book itself. Uh, it's a book where there is this search for wisdom that sounds very much like Solomon uh, and his, uh, his great wisdom that God had given him. It, it's a book that has po- some poetic portions that sound very much like the Proverbs. Uh, the, the author is described as having massive wealth and possessions and and uh, slaves and, and uh, status in his society. So all of that points to Solomon as the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And as Solomon speaks, he's speaking in Ecclesiastes uh, uh, with this voice of experience. He's been there, done that. Uh, he's seen things. He's done things. He's attained things at a level that nobody else ever has. Uh, he's reached the pinnacle of these attainments and of these gains. And so as, as an author of this book, he stands there at, at the peak of that mountain of achievement, and he looks back at the rest of humanity who is trying to claw their way up this mountain of achievement, uh, a world that loves to chase possessions thinking that one more dollar will make a meaningful difference, or a, pers- or a world that loves to, to, to chase status thinking just one more rung up the ladder will make a meaningful difference, or a world that loves to pour into the next generation of young people behind them, and, and maybe it'll make a, a meaningful uh, difference um, and make, uh, give their life value, it leave some sort of legacy behind. And so he speaks to a world that's trying to attain all the things that he has attained. And he's standing on the top of the mountain, yelling down and going, hey, I've been here and there's nothing up here. It didn't pan out. I thought it would be satisfying to be one notch higher and yet here I am on the top and it's not. There's nothing consequential up here. 
Let's look at verses 2 through 11. I'm going to read them again. The vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times in one verse. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor yet will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. The preacher's view of life is that everything is vanity or vanity of vanities, and that, that word for vanity sometimes is translated as, as breath or, or just a passing vapor. And that would be the, the literal use, but it's used metaphorically to point to something that just is gone. Something that has no real value, that's fleeting and fragile like your breath on a cold day. And then it, it disperses. Mounts describes it or defines it as something with no substance, something that's meaningless, worthless, vanity, emptiness, futility. And the preacher repeats that refrain of vanity 38 times in Ecclesiastes 12 chapters. Over and over and over, all his efforts are vain. Life to him seems vain. Twice in the book, once here at the beginning and once near the end of the book, he uses that emphatic vanity of vanities. This is the most worthless thing of all worthless things. He describes it seven times in the book as striving after wind. Vanity and striving after wind. Uh, that is a vain endeavor, right? That's an empty endeavor. Try to catch the wind. Try to tell your employer that you had a productive day chasing the winds today. Like, great, how about we don't do that tomorrow? That, <laughs> that's of no value. It's like when I use the laser pointer to mess with the, the little kids and they try to catch it, and then it's on the back of their hand instead of underneath, because you can't, you can't catch the light, you can't catch the wind, it accomplishes nothing, and the, the preacher here describes his whole life that way. The most worthless of all worthless things. Nothing to show for all of his massive efforts at significance. Surprisingly, the preacher says that this is all-encompassing there in verse 2. All is vanity. Everything, or at least all of the things that he says are under the sun, which is where we are. And so if he's looking at us and going, hey, y'all, everything's vanity. God isn't, but you are. That, that applies to everything under the sun. That includes us, right? Man, what is useful in our lives? What is actual meaning? Where is it found? Verses 2 through 11 that I just read here is a, a poetic description of all the, the seemingly meaninglessness of life. 
And then once you get to verse 12 and on into chapter 2, the preacher, he goes into action and he's like, I'm going to try to break this cycle of meaninglessness. Everything looks like it's just going round and round, so I'm going to put every effort into to, to, to break in the cycle so we can produce something meaningful that isn't just a, a cycle. Everything to him seems circular as you read verses 2 through 11. Did you notice that? He describes these things just go round and round and never gain anything. He begins with the generations, or, or he begins with work, but in, then in verse number 4, he begins with the generations. And he's just looking from a human perspective at one generation, and they have their progeny, and that generation grows up, and they have their progeny, and the next generation goes up, and they have their children, their descendants, and do we actually get anywhere? Do we actually get any headway? And from his perspective, no. The generations just rise and fall, rise and fall. This is one of these things that is typically viewed as, as of real value. It's significant to, to invest your life into the upcoming generation, right? That's noble and a high calling. And the preacher here, he's just really black and white and goes, Why? Why are you investing in the next generation if all they're going to do is invest into the next one? And he's going to point out later, you end up in the grave. So what was actually significant there? Do we just live on this treadmill of generations going round and round? He describes nature as going round and round. And he uses all these natural phenomenon to emphasize to us human beings that our life seems to have that same cyclical nature. What does the sun accomplish when it comes up in the morning? Well, it comes up, and it goes across the sky, and it goes down, uh, and then it comes up again. The, 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 did the sun gain anything? It went round and round. The, the, the days pass, the years pass as the, as the earth goes around the sun, and then it starts over again. Pluto, think about the value of Pluto and what, what Pluto can achieve in this universe. It has an orbit the last 248 years. And 248 years later, he gets to start over again. Orbiting around the sun. He put, he put, the orbit, uh, Pluto has just as much effort in his orbit as our planet does, and it takes him 248 years to do the same thing, to go around the sun. Pluto's only consolation is at least he doesn't have to start over as often. We turned our calendar over this morning. You probably got one for Christmas. Uh, maybe you got a nice one that have your kids and grandkids on it so you can remember what they used to look like. Um, maybe you got one from State Farm and you can have a commercial for new insurance every month. Um, but the pages turn on the calendar, right? And then you hang up a new one. And the only thing that's different is the day starts, the, the, month start, the, the year starts on a different day of the, the week. Next, next year, it won't be on Sunday, right? The big joke this year has been, hey, guys, surprisingly, this year we have got Christmas on Sunday and we've got New Year's on Sunday. Easter is going to be on Sunday, too. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, 31 days from now, you're going to flip the calendar on to February, and you're going to do that 12 times, and you're going to flip it back to January. It goes round and round, like the sun. The wind, 
blows. It blows to the south. It goes to the north. Round and around it goes. The water runs downhill and gets to the ocean and it evaporates and goes into a cloud and it falls down and runs downhill again. And that repetition that the the preacher here is pointing to is to cause us to realize that human effort toward true satisfaction is really, really fleeting and true meaningfulness by human effort might just be absolutely impossible. Maybe you're never going to make it. In verse 8, he points to the eye and the ear. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear with hearing. And isn't that true? When you see something beautiful, if you actually find it attractive, you want to see other things that are beautiful, right? When you hear something that's beautiful, then you want to hear other things that are beautiful. Nobody ever walks out of a concert and goes, whoa, that was so incredible. I don't think I ever need to hear any music ever again. That actually, that's satisfied. Done. Because it was so great. We would say that if it was really bad. Like, it was so terrible, I never want to hear any music again. But if it's actually beautiful, then it, it, your ear never gets filled up. Your eyes never get filled up. That's one of the things that betray our sense of sensuality as, as empty, uh, is, is that sinful lusts never end up getting satisfied, right? We never reach the finish line trying to please ourselves. Verse number 11. Everything passes by, even your memories fade away. Verse 11 just leaves us no wiggle room at all. He says, look, think about it. There's so much of the past that has been forgotten already. And here we stand today, and we look forward and go, hey, there's this wonderful future ahead of of you. But guess what? The things that are future to you now are going to be forgotten by people who live after that. So where's the value there? The most durable of all human achievements, and the the most durable I could think of is the, the pyramids in Egypt. Somewhere, hundreds of years ago, thousands. Those pyramids, I think, were like 500 years old when Abraham walked by, okay? Of all human achievements, wow, those endure. The pyramids, they stand. Humanity accomplished something productive with this big pile of rocks that's still there. Okay, who built them? We don't know. That, that's the most durable of all human achievements, and we don't even really know who did it or how. The aliens did it. There's, there's very small chance that any of us are going to produce something as enduring as a pyramid that thousands of years from now they'll go, wow, Matt Tramp built that pyramid. Like, that ain't going to happen. Right? Right? I gave, I gave a little thought, thought to it. I had to, I had to think. Um, and I can remember the names, the first names, of three out of my four sets of great-grandparents. Um, I don't know any of Angie's grandparents' first names off the top of my head. Uh, my, my kids only have one living great-grandparent. Uh, they lived and they died. And the, the preacher points us toward that as a, as a way of self-reflection to remind us that we will all live and we will all die and our children will all live and they will die too if the Lord doesn't come back. But, but the preacher doesn't bring that into the equation yet. 
So here's this big cycle, meaninglessness. This is a, a, a depressing chapter, but it's also kind of realistic. Like, he's kind of right if you stop and think about it. We're all really busy and we don't think about that very often, but he took the time to do it and to go, hey guys, look, is there real value in generations rising and falling and going round and round? What about your life? The preacher recognizes this, and so he engages in this epic odyssey to try to break the cycle of vanity. From chapter 12 onward, he makes every effort to somehow catch that wind and put it in a bottle so he can say, I did it. I finally got something valuable. He has the resources and the wherewithal to pursue value through every means available to him. And his means were vast. He starts with wisdom in verse 12 and onward, and he achieves the the heights of the ivory tower. His wisdom and his knowledge are unmatched. And it it seems to me like all that gains for him is now he's smart enough to think about how meaningless life is. Like, it just ends up being a pain to be so wise. Wisdom doesn't bring him real, genuine satisfaction. So he moves to pleasure in chapter 2. Unhindered hedonism, everything that feels good, whatever makes him happy, whatever makes him laugh, he says. Wine to cheer his heart. And he concludes, oh, that's all vanity too. He tries work. He builds great buildings and gardens and feats of architecture, something that'll be enduring. That was vanity too. So he goes for possessions. He builds pools and he owns property and he has slaves and herds and flocks. More than anyone in Jerusalem, he's on top. He's got silver and he's got gold. It all amounts to nothing. So he tries sex. He has as many concubines as he can get together. Nothing. He aims for prominence. He's going to be the top dog, and he attains it. He is the most prominent, greater than all in Jerusalem, and and it's all vanity and striving after wind. He doesn't catch the wind. It doesn't add up to anything significant. And at the end, he just looks back and goes, I have all my attainments, and I'm so wise, and yet me and the fool, the same thing happens to us. We both die. My wisdom didn't give me a leg up, It didn't gain me anything. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 and onward. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. This is really dark, but he's being realistic. One of the big questions that comes up with Solomon is how could someone be so wise, particularly when you're reading about him in, in, the, in the Kings and the Chronicles, 
where God just gives him this infinite wisdom? How could someone so wise who could write the Proverbs, how could he be so dumb as to have 300 wives and 700 concubines? How could someone so wise be so foolish? And Ecclesiastes gives us a little bit of insight, not everything, but a little bit of insight into it. And one of the things Ecclesiastes tells us is is that he wasn't being stupid in pursuing all of these endeavors. He was doing it as a giant experiment to see if it worked. He did it with his head on. He did it with his eyes open to try to figure out if it was actually meaningful. It says that in all these endeavors, he wasn't just cutting loose and trying to numb himself from reality with all of his pleasure. He was doing all the pleasure and then analyzing it to see if it produced meaning. It says through all of this that his wisdom stayed with him. He says, my wisdom stayed with me. He did it thoughtfully. He was considering if this indulgence actually ended up being meaningful. And that's, that's pretty significant because one of the major traps of pursuing all worldly things is, is that we tend to do it partly to achieve the joy that he was chasing and partly to distract us from bigger realities. And he's not going to be distracted. The preacher's not. He's going to pay attention to see if this is meaningful. We often try to find meaning and fulfillment in those in things, and we use that worldliness to distract us from its own meaningless. We, ch- we chase the wind, and we use the exercise to distract us from thinking about whether this is important or not. Um, that's a large part of why our culture is wrapped up in entertainment and experiences, because you don't have to think about death if you're busy thinking about something else. You don't have to think about something being meaningful or significant if you're really distracted by something trivial. And since death awaits us all, and everybody will think about it if they're left to their own, if, if they give themselves some space to think about it, then a society that can afford to is going to try everything they can to not think about it, to not think about death. Turn on your TV, scroll the, the web endlessly, put in your headphones so you're not alone with your thoughts because you might think about your coming mortality. It's real. Work more hours. Add another thing to your thing collection. Um, and, it, and if your life is, is really sing- insignificant and meaningless, then just dull your senses with drugs and alcohol and don't think about it. Don't think about whether it's meaningful. Especially don't think about death. And the preacher here does not want to do that. His pursuit of joy is very deliberate. 2 verse 1 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Again, this was a massive experiment in meaning. Verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 3, I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was food for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. 2 verse 9, my wisdom remained with me. At 2 verse 12, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So again, he's doing this with his eyes open. 
it does it end up fulfilling? He's going to ask that hard question. And this is a really, really wonderful resource for us to learn from, right? Because we don't have the same resources that, that he did, and we might tell ourselves that, that one more rung up the ladder might be meaningful. I've never been another, I've never been there. Maybe once I get there, I'll find true meaning. And here he is on top of everything. And he says, I've been there, I've done that, I bought the commemorative t-shirt, and I looked at the t-shirt, and guys, it's not worth it. It wasn't worth the effort. And that serves as a good warning to us and a useful resource to have somebody who's been there to tell us that that human achievement isn't ultimately meaningful. There's a fleeting man. Maybe that's left everyone a little bit depressed. Um, And so we're going to turn from fleeting man and just like the preacher does, we're going to turn toward the eternal God. Uh, this morning, I, I cannot untangle all the knots about, hey, here, here's actually something that is truly meaningful. Here's how you can spend your life in an actually wise and productive way. The Bible has a, a, a lot to say about that. I'm not going to untie everything. We're not going to grapple with, with everything about how our lives can have true value. I think next week we'll untangle it a little more. But for now, we're just going to take a hard turn from, wow, man's efforts seem really worthless. And we're going to look the other way and go, well, God is different. God's different. His efforts are not futile and fleeting. Skip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 14 and following. We'll read it in just a second. So far we've looked at the fleeting nature of man. And the nature of man is just that. It's about man. It's about life under the sun where we all live. But under the sun isn't all reality, right? There's something over the sun. There's someone who made the sun and everything under it that is more significant than everything that is under the sun. There's something transcendent, an eternal God, and he does things differently. What he does endures. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Man is fleeting, but God is eternal. And I want to look at the eternality, the substantial nature of God and his works just in, in two ways. The first one is just simply that what God does endures forever. So while you look at man on this earth under the sun and left all to ourselves, our lives seem meaningless and cyclical and just passing things on to the next generation that may squander it or may not, and they're just going to pass things on to the next generation. 
What God does actually endures forever. And that's plain in verse 14. Whatever God does endures forever. That endurance is completely the opposite of how our activities seem. The preacher describes ours as wind and vanity and God's works as enduring and substantial and remaining. You can build yourself a pyramid out of rocks and eventually the wind or the water will wear it down. But not so with the things that God does. What he does endure, endures forever. And what he does is completely opposite of what we can do. God's works are decidedly not vanity of vanity. The preacher says that his works endure forever. And he also says that, that those, the, the scope of God's enduring work is all-encompassing. In other words, whatever God does is enduring. Whatever he does, there's nothing that God does that ends up wasting away. While all the things that we do will disappear, God does everything enduring. There's nothing that slides off into the cracks of God's sofa and is overlooked and forgotten and inconsequential. Everything he does is purposeful, and enduring. Our most familiar passage on that theme is, is Romans 8.28, right? That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Nothing slips through his fingers and ends up being useless. He pulls everything together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Ezra, he puts it this way, It's kind of interesting in, in, uh, in Ezra. If you read Ezra 8.22 in its context, he's kind of concerned about talking to the king about how things are going. Um, I, I think it's with the rebuilding of the wall. Um, he's concerned to talk to the king because he says, I told the king that God was enduring. And it might sound like we have a poor testimony in reflecting God's character. But what he had told the king was, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Nothing, either for good for those who seek him or for judgment against those who disregard God, nothing is useless from God's perspective. Nothing he does passes away. It's all enduring. Another thing about God's enduring works there in 3.14 is, is that they cannot be undone. There is no power that can thwart his efforts. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away. There's no power, physical or spiritual, that can undo or thwart God's plans and his purposes. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. All his acts endure, and all of his acts are purposeful. They are so that man will fear him. God has done it so that people fear before him. The fear of God puts us in right relation to God. We are but creations of his. 
He is infinite and we are finite and to fear him is to rightly regard him. Fearing God kind of sums everything up. And that's the way the Ecclesiastes is summed up at the end. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So man's efforts may seem vain to our eyes. They may seem meaningless, but God's acts are enduring and they are for the purpose so that humanity will be brought to proper relationship with God and fear him, rightly aligned with him. If we know that that our efforts are a, a vapor, then we're humbled, right? We're humbled in in ourselves and compelled to rely on God who's bigger and more enduring than we are. And there's no greater way that reliance on God can be expressed than in our repentance and on our reliance on him for eternal life, right? We have to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. Our own efforts on that regard are useless, right? We've never atoned for a single one through our own effort, and yet we can rely on a God whose works endured for the salvation of our souls. So God's works are enduring. One other thing about God is is that from God's perspective, history is not an endless, pointless cycle that goes round and round. History is actually linear. A timeline is an appropriate way to look at history because there was a beginning and there was an end or there will be an end. Look at Ecclesiastes 3, 16 and 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. From God's perspective, which he's revealed in the Bible, which is great, since we don't have his perspective, since we need him to tell us we're not just living in the now, but that there there is a past and there is a future to come. We need his perspective revealed to us and he's given it. And from God's perspective, there is a beginning when he created all things. Before that, there was nothing. And then he spoke the word and there it was. And there was a time after that when that world went from perfect into fallen, sinful state. There was a time after that when the world was so evil that there was a a catastrophe that, that destroyed the earth by water. And there was a time that was leading up to the arrival of his son, And there was a time, uh, the fullness of time, where his son did arrive. So that that gap between creation and the arrival of Jesus Christ was 4,000 years long, give or take a little bit. And at any year in between there, which is where the preacher lived, he lived in there, any any time in there might have seemed fleeting and vanishing and and, uh, vain. And yet it wasn't. It was heading up toward the arrival of Jesus Christ. And there was a time he arrived. There was a time he died. There was a time three days after that when he rose from the dead. The disciples, after his death, they thought things were meaningless till he burst out of the grave again. There's a time when he sent his spirit to indwell and to fill the church. And we live in that time. And we live in a time where the gospel is commanded to be proclaimed uh, to all of the earth. And that's our mission 
And there's still to come a time in the future that we know some things about and not other things about, but at some point, he's going to arrive again. And we can't fall into the same pattern that the world does and go, where is his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. He hasn't arrived. We can't do that because there is coming a day when he will arrive and those seemingly endless cycles of days and years are going to terminate in Jesus showing up in his glory. And he will judge. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The cycle of history will have a conclusion. It will all be tied up in God's purposes. And we're called to give an account of those things and to redeem them, to use them for God's sake. Uh, If you sit here this morning and you are not right with God, then it is infinitely consequential for you to consider life does seem meaningless. Why am I doing what I'm doing? It's good for you to look death right in the eye and say, it is coming whether I like it or not. It's real, and I might distract myself from it, and I might not pay attention to it very often, but it's there And one day, you will stand before God. And your efforts at diversion and your efforts at meaningfulness, like the preacher here, will all be exposed as not redemptive, as being nothing before God. You'll stand before him and you'll be judged according to your deeds, and none of your deeds will stand. And scripture tells us that Judgment awaits those who aren't right before God. And if you're not right with God, then, those, then every single cycle of a new day is God's mercy one more day for you to trust in him. Romans 2 challenges us, don't presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't assume you have tomorrow. In fact, if you, just, if you don't trust in the Lord today, Paul warns us that your hard and penitent heart is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. You've just spent another day piling up the condemnation against you if you're not right with God. And the only thing worse than a meaningless life that just ends and is nothing is a meaningless life that actually ends in eternal judgment, which is what scripture reveals to us. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't spend another day storing up wrath. Trust in the forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ so you can be made right with God. You have nothing to offer except that. You have nothing to offer, but you can fall into the hands of a God whose works endure. For believers, the the expectation that God is going to one day appear is good news. When the author of Ecclesiastes says, God will judge, we go, thank you. That'll be a good day. That'll be a good day. The arrival, uh, if you're in a courtroom 
and you're the defendant and you stand to be condemned, the, the arrival of the judge is fearful if you're guilty, but if you know that the gavel is going to fall and it's going to be not guilty, actually, well done, enter into the joy of your master, you're looking forward to when the judge shows up. Let's get this thing over with. And on that day of God's judgment, you'll stand before him and you're not going to look back on your life and go, whew, good thing I managed to scratch something meaningful out of that life. I, I, I did this much. On the day when you stand before God, you're going to fall before him, cast his crowns at his feet, and you're going to be grateful that he acted on your behalf and that what he does endures forever. And that's really good news. Let's pray. Our God, in a life that from our perspective, uh, one day leads to another and one year leads to another, we first of all need to look to you and your stability, your faithfulness, your unshakableness. Nothing changes you whatsoever. You are the same. You're the same yesterday and today forever. And Lord, to us, you've extended your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for that. Thank you for your son that, that interrupted the, uh, the normal course of this world and that he provided redemption for all who trust in him. And Lord, we thank you that we can live 2013 with hope of standing before you and giving you praise for what you have done and not for what we have. We love you. We're humbled that you would love us. In Jesus' name, amen.